0: We've got the incredible Audible sponsoring our show today. Thank you, Audible. If you've been hiding under a rock, Audible is the leading provider of audio content on the Internet. With Audible, you can enjoy books freely wherever you'd like and doing whatever you'd like. Download a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial by visiting audiblepodcast.com backslash Harmar today. That's audiblepodcast.com backslash h-a-r-m-a-r now on with the show Welcome to Nocturnal Emotions, everybody. I am your host, Harmar Superstar, aka Sean Tillman, taking you on a flight of fancy into the nighttime where the feeling is so goddamn right. Yet again, yep, guys. Normally, I have conversations with people that I find interesting, and I will again starting next week. I, uh, I've just been reading out of this LL Cool J book that I can't, I can't stop now. I mean, it's just, it's just getting too good. And over Labor Day weekend, it's been. Uh, uh, just impossible to find anybody to come in and commit to doing interviews. Uh, I hope you understand, because I didn't want to do anything myself, but I'm doing this because it's fun, and I like reading LL Cool J's words in my voice. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I almost had some, like, harebrained idea to interview myself. That was really ridiculous. I almost went through with it, and I was like, what am I doing? Why would I do that? And who wants to hear that? Nobody. So, uh, so there. So you're you're really like you're getting a treat for me. This is I consider this a treat. Reading, I make my own rules by LL Cool J, the 1998 autobiography. Other than that, it's been good. I've been home for a little bit, a few days here in New York. Uh, I have a couple weeks to regroup before I take off again. And uh, this week we're announcing that uh, I am opening the AAS yeah, yeah, East Coast shows in Philly on September 17th and September 19th in Brooklyn at Barclays Center, which is going to be a huge, crazy, fun night. Get your tickets. There's only a few left, uh, for that. That's going to be so fucking fun. I can't wait. Um, you know, other than that, just sort of, uh, enjoying the lazy sweatiness of summer right now. It's just that humid time where it wants to rain, but it won't, and, uh, whatever. Everyone's sweaty, so it's great. It's good times. Um, But yeah, I guess, you know, without further ado here, I'm going to keep going on the fourth installment of me reading you LL Cool Jays. I make my own rules. We learn a lot here. Get excited. I mean, there's some, uh, this is kind of the juiciest, juiciest, uh, chapters. Um, the first two that I read are all about like, you know, the, the sex and the money and, uh, and uh, L.L.'s not proud, you know, but he gives, he gives you the dirt. And then, you know, we learn a lot about Cornell and, and how, and how his, his business relations ended up. And, and, and L.L.'s spiritual journey. Let's not take that out of it because that's a big part of it, a big part of this book. Um, so here we go. Here we go. Reading on. Enjoy, everybody. I hope, I hope you're enjoying. Here we go. XS Triple X. Note. I just want to let everyone who is reading this know that I'm not proud of anything that's in this chapter, and I wouldn't advise any person to do any of the things that I did. Period. I know some of the acts I committed were sick and disgusting. I'm merely coming clean to prove the point that anyone can overcome the most heinous of sins, the most deviant behavior, and turn their life around for the better. This chapter contains explicit material. An edition of this book that is suitable for all audiences is available. Check with your local book retailer. End note. And uh, uh, note from the reader, I'm very excited to see what happens. (laughs) Okay, here we go. The lights are down real low. There's a rumble from the crowd, waiting, anticipating. Cut Creator takes his place on the stage and starts scratching the bass from Rock the Bells. It's pumping, rocking the huge speakers on either side of the stage. Can you feel it? I'm leaning up against the speaker at stage right. Neither the audience nor the crew can see me and it's a good thing. My eyes are closed and I'm just feeling it. A beautiful young lady, the kind of woman who's supposed to be on stage hanging on to a superstar is on her knees in front of me. And she's doing it and doing it and doing it well, if you know what I mean. It's Madison Square Garden where I'm opening for Run DMC. Cut Creator gives me my cue to come out and I do. I take my time zipping up my jeans. Just trying to seem appreciative. I drop a smile on the lady, run out on stage like a man possessed, and grab the mic. Ah, yeah, throw your hands in the air. Everybody, throw your hands in the air. It was my first tour. I was 17 years old, and I was thinking, if this is the way it's going to be, I'm definitely going to love being a rapper. The groupies, big ones, small ones, tall ones, sexy ones, soft ones, were as plentiful as the grains of sand on Jones Beach. And being with them was as easy as pouring out a handful of candy and tossing it into my mouth. Women waiting, stalking, wanting to do whatever it took to get a piece of me. To some of them, having sex with a rapper was like collecting baseball cards. They wanted to collect every player. It was wild. I did one show during the Panther tour in Atlanta. After the first set, there were so many girls waiting backstage, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. I mean, mad honeys, leather miniskirts, fishnet stockings, lace-up corsets everywhere, hoochie central. One girl caught my eye. She was wearing this short black skirt, showing off those long legs, and her cleavage was spilling out like melons at a fruit stand. I pointed to her and gestured for her to follow me i sneaked her upstairs slipping through the entourage and security my boys were just smiling and we went into the bathroom of the dressing room all i've ever wanted was to make love to you she said breathlessly i love you "Uh uh-huh i said unzipping her shirt i didn't even know her let alone believe her all of that was nice but i was just thinking about one thing knocking it out we didn't waste any time we didn't even take all our clothes off. I just bent her over the sink, pulled down her little lace panties, and went to work from behind. That was probably the best way because she was pregnant and showing it. I had just met her that night, and in a lot of ways, that was one of the sickest things I ever did. It was also the day I realized I was out of control. I know you're making faces right now, but you wanted it real, and I'm giving it to you real. I was having sex for the sake of sex. No love, no respect, just quick, sweaty sex. It took me a while to break the habit. In this business, sex is like candy. Plentiful and cheap. Every artist who performs in front of a lot of people and goes on tours knows what I'm talking about. Crazy experiences and sex with wild women and sex groupies, mad parties, which also turn into orgies. Sometimes you have multiple couples going at it in the same room and nobody blinks an eye. They say it comes with the territory and that it's part of the culture, but just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right. I knew I wasn't right. I was wild, bananas, off the hook and so were my tours i realize that's not how it has to be i can dictate whether or not my tours will get wild wet and woolly sure all kinds of women will always be there as long as i'm doing my thing right but whether or not i partake in their activities is another story when i was wild touring was almost like whoring but today my tours behind the scenes and in the hotels are tame sometimes even boring I don't even want the people around me to drink. It's all business. My wild behavior, the sexual athletics, was a little sick. No healthy, normal person would behave like that. Then again, how many 17-year-olds do you know who would pass up a blowjob while all pumped up on stage before a performance, especially with a young lady dressed in her best and ready Freddy with her sweet-smelling body? Let's be real. All the same, I wasn't living right. After that episode with the pregnant groupie, I really began to face my demons. I began to realize that I was addicted to being destructive. Some of my behavior was because I was just nasty, just the dog in me. But I know that a lot of it had to do with the beatings and the neglect and the abuse I received as a kid. It definitely warped my perspective on love and relationships. It was like Roscoe had started me down a path and I kept on walking. The man was a pervert, straight up. Our house was full of pornographic magazines and it wasn't just the usual stuff. There was sadomasochism, orgies, you name it. One time, when I was eight years old, I was alone in the house with Roscoe. I'd gone to the bathroom, and I was heading back to my room. I passed Roscoe asleep in the bedroom. Magazines were spread out all over the bed. I went to check out the situation. I was a kid, so I was naturally curious. Then I picked up one of them, and my eyes bugged out. Nothing but naked women. Roscoe suddenly woke and barked out, What are you doing? I dropped the magazine and turned to run, but before I could get out of the room, he grabbed my arm. I almost peed myself. Look at it, he said. Go ahead, look at it all. He made me stay there and look at each magazine, every page, every woman. I was sweating hard. Here I was, an eight-year-old kid practically in tears being force-fed pornography. For For an adult to do what he did, to me, was cruel and evil. Really fucked up. Another time I came home and I went upstairs after school. The bathroom door was cracked and I accidentally saw Roscoe standing over the toilet masturbating. I didn't know exactly what he was doing, but I knew it had something to do with sex and I figured that must be where he got his power. In my little kid's mind, I began to associate masturbation and sex with power. Here was a man who had complete control over me, who beat me, belittled me, terrified me, and ran my mother. I must have subconsciously thought he got that power over us through sex, through dominating women. I wanted it too. I can admit now I was addicted to porn. Aside from it always being in the house, it represented power and escape. I would look at the pictures and get hard, and even though I didn't know exactly what was that and what was what, I knew it felt good, and I knew it took me to a pleasurable world where no one bothered me and where women were beautiful. It was an escape from the other bullshit. Later, when I finally started having sex, I tried not to carry a lot of that filth with me. The first time I had real sex, I was 13. My aunt let me have some friends over, and we camped out in the backyard. There were a couple of girls, too. We were in the backyard bucking it, bugging out in a tent, and I noticed that Sheila, not a real name, was giving me the vibes, the ones that say "I want to mess around." I was feeling her, and when I made my move, she was with it. She was older. 15 and we got busy ridden, right in that tent while her girl was asleep right next to her it was exciting because at any moment we could have gotten busted so we had to be quick and i was but just before i was about to climax i pulled out because i was so scared i'd never felt that feeling before like i was literally going to explode i was just staring at my penis in amazement she asked me if i was all right She must have been through this a few times. I was a little shell-shocked, but I lied and said, yeah. When I was 16, I had a little girlfriend I used to mess with. She was about 15, and while she liked to mess, kissing, touching, rubbing, and sucking, she didn't want to go all the way. She liked me to do things to her, but she didn't want to do anything to me. I was never the type to push up on a girl and try to force the issue, so I went with her program, hoping that one day she would say yes. Every other day, I would go to her house, hoping... Each time, I would end up leaving there in pain with blue balls. On my way home, I'd go crazy. I'd be sitting on the bus back home to Hollis, horny as hell. One time, I just got off the bus on Jamaica Avenue, one of the main strips in Queens, found a corner and jerked off. I just couldn't take it anymore. She drove me nuts, literally. (laughs) It was two in the morning, and my hormones were raging. The wind was howling, and I'm hunched over in a corner on Jamaica Avenue, not caring who could see me beating my meat like some pervert. Once I started touring, though, none of the girls were making me wait. Nobody said no. It was like it wasn't in the vocabulary backstage. On my first mini-tour for radio, we stopped in Boston, a 15,000-seat arena. Sure wasn't the Manhattan Center High School Auditorium, capacity 250. This was the big time. I was opening for... Run DMC, but as far as I was concerned, I was the main attraction. And the crowd, especially the ladies, seemed to agree. I slept with two girls there in one day. I was like, bring it on! After Boston, we headed to Maine. The audience was mixed, black and white, like in Boston. I'd never seen that many white people sewing a rap, but it wasn't just performing that had me juiced. It was the after-show show, the ladies. I was a kid in a candy shop of sex. When the show was over, a half dozen women, maybe more, were waiting for us backstage. One girl, big and fat, gave me the look. The sly smirk, which says, you can do whatever you want, when you want, however you want, wherever you want, for as long as you want. She had freak written all over her. Me and my man E. Love both got down with her right there on the staircase between the stage and the exit from the arena. Yo, after that, every time we'd see groupies, we'd yell out, "Main." That was our code for freak. Goopies were waiting at every stop. They'd be everywhere in the hallway, in the lobby, on the street. They'd be at the hotel before we even got there. I don't know how they found out where we'd be staying, but in every city, town, or village, they would just be waiting and ready, and I was like a lion picking out slow gazelles. After a while, I would just take a quick look, and I'd know who to go after. But it was also a yin and yang thing. They were on the same hunt too. Some of them wanted to be loved. Some wanted to feel special. Some of them wanted careers, wanted to be actresses, singers. Some of them just wanted to get a man with money to take care of them. Some just wanted to get to the money. And yes, some just wanted good sex. The women were all different, but in a lot of ways the same. It wasn't always negative or always positive. It didn't really matter. I didn't care about anything but getting my freak on. I was 17 and always thinking the same thing. She's prettier. She looks like a freak, and I'm going to take her in my room and knock it out. We'll deal with the rest later. It wasn't particularly wise to be that way. I wasn't particularly careful, but I was lucky. I said, "How you doing?" My name's Big L. Don't ask me how I'm living, cause yo, I'm living swell. But then again, I'm living kind of foul, 'cause my girl don't—my t- girl don't know what I'm out on the prowl. To make a long story short, I got the digits. Calls on my car phone, paid her a visit. I was spanking her and thanking her, chewing her and doing her, laying like a king on sheets of satin. That's what time it is, you know what's happening. She had a big old booty. I was doing my duty. I saw her in the audience at a concert in Baltimore. She was standing up front, looking hot. I winked at her, motioned for her to meet me backstage after the show. Yeah, I did it all while on stage. I was off the hook. Her name was Phoenix, not her real name. She was beautiful, about my complexion, she had freckles, and she was a virgin. I brought her back to the hotel room, and we started getting romantic. But we couldn't really complete the act because I was so inexperienced. My total thing was hitting and moving on. Back then, I had one speed. Fast. There wasn't a whole lot of variety in my repertoire, but it seemed to work well anyway. This time, however, I was out of my league. I had never been with a virgin, and I didn't know how to make her feel at ease. It took us two and a half hours of hugging and kissing, rubbing and prodding, and still nothing was happening. It was frustrating and at all the same time comical, so I finally gave up. I just held her for the rest of the evening, and we fell asleep. "'Well, my sole purpose at the time was sex. "'Some women had other motives. "'Some used sex for selfish reasons, to get all they could get. "'Others denied sex for the same reason. "'At 17 and 18, I definitely wasn't checking for that. "'I met one young lady while touring in Philly, "'and we hung out and had a good time. "'We were in my suite, and I was trying to convince her "'to have sex with me, but nothing was happening. "'I got up and went into the bedroom for a while, "'hoping she'd change her mind. "'She was in the living room watching TV "'when there was a knock on the bedroom door.' "'I looked through the peephole and saw another girl I'd met at the concert. "'I'd given her my room number. "'Good thing,' I thought. "'She was standing in the hallway with that doomy smirk on her face. "'I let her in and she didn't waste any time. "'Started with slow, warm kisses and soft touches, her easing down the zipper. "'Then it just turned wild. "'She was ripping off my clothes and pushing me onto the floor.' Before I know it, I'm on my hands and knees and she's behind me licking my starfish. Then I look up and there's the girl from the next room standing there staring. All I could do was laugh. The girl who was doing me didn't stop, though, and neither did I. Sometimes I can't believe how wild I was. I know being that uh, that way wasn't very healthy, but I escaped pretty much unscathed, physically anyway. I didn't have any fatal attractions, and nothing real crazy happened to me. My encounters with the ladies were very calm, cool, and relaxed. There wasn't a lot of drama. I didn't force myself on them. and If someone didn't want to do it, I didn't push. It was about having fun. It was, yo, let's get busy, the whole time. I was so caught up in myself, I would tell girls, don't fall in love with me but plenty of them got attached anyway. There was always a point where they were telling me they loved me, and that bugged me out. One time, though, the script got flipped, and I thought I was in love. I'm going back to Cali, rising, surprising, advising, realizing she's sizing me up. Her bikini small, heels tall. She said she liked the ocean. She showed me a beach, gave me a peach, and pulled out the suntan lotion. It was my first time out in California. From the moment I stepped off the plane, I was loving Cali. The weather, the palm trees, and of course, the ladies. I wrote going back to Cali in tribute to my love for the place. I was booked to do Soul Train right after uh, radio had dropped. I was so excited, just like a little kid. I grew up watching Soul Train and I was now on it. During my performance, I noticed this girl in the audience dancing. She wasn't a professional dancer, one of the regulars. She was just there dancing. She was unreal, slim, with smooth skin, and she was black but had Latin look. Curly hair, slightly bow-legged. After the show, homegirl came up to me all sassy, gave me that smirk, and said, Come here and give me a kiss. Did I? Yeah. I took her back to the hotel. She had a small rip in the crotch of her pants. I made a bigger rip, and it was over. Gina. Not a real name was my introduction to Cali sex, and I thought it was off the hook. It was my first time getting a chick on the Humble like that, and I got really caught up. In fact, she she became my first regular sexual partner. I hadn't thought about being with a girl on a regular basis before her, not that she was my girl, because she wasn't the only one I was dealing with, and I damn sure wasn't the only one for her. Cheating wasn't the word for what she was doing. She was about 17 or 18 and from Cali and had been around. But I wanted her. A lot. She was wild and had me open. I couldn't get enough. I used to be into the sex. So into it. And she would scratch my back up... "'Yell for me to keep going?' "'With her, it was totally about sex. "'It didn't matter what was going on mentally "'because physically, it was just so good. "'There was a conversation, but it was the fit, "'the wetness, the tightness. "'It was everything that you love. "'It was ripe, plus she had a mound of Venus, "'a real flytrap. "'She had complete control over her muscles. "'It was crazy for me at 16. "'I couldn't handle it back then. "'It was definitely handling me. "'I was pretty much in control of the ladies until her, "'but I had never really chased women.' I wasn't one of those smooth brothers who had a rap. I was very shy. To some women, it might have seemed like I was too into myself or like I thought I was all that, but it was just the opposite. I was petrified of being rejected, so I rarely tried. I mean, you gotta check a kid who starts wearing a hat at a very early age and never takes it off. That ain't someone who thinks they're all that. But a rap fame... The rap fame brought the the women to me. All I had to do was pick and choose. There was no guessing game about whether or not I was gonna get it. There was no question i was it was mine and i got more and more successful and famous and there were more and more women and the selection only got better there was a new world full of groupies and i was the christopher columbus of hip-hop but i definitely wasn't experienced enough to handle gina i was whipped by her sex which was incredible and she played me like a little puppy dog she started only giving it to me and when she wanted like she was training me I was so sprung, I believed everything she told me. I even found out that she had gotten pregnant by God knows who, because it wasn't me. Instead of admitting it, she said she had to, she had told me something was wrong with her stomach, and that she had gone to the doctor and some kind of condition, and I believed her. Now tell me I wasn't caught up. One time, I flew all the way from New York to be with her. And when I got to her place, she told me to go away. She wouldn't even open the door, and I knew she had someone else inside. I couldn't believe it. This girl definitely had game, and I had none. After that, I looked not to mess with her anymore and left her alone, but she really messed me up. For the longest time, I was going through women like rocks through windows. It seemed like the more I fucked, the hotter my records got. I said to the girl, them young boys ain't nothing. You want to get freaky, let me kiss your belly button. I circled it and teased it and made her squeal. Grabbed a pack of bullets and pulled out the steel. When I was through, I wiped the sweat from my eyes. Went to the kitchen and got some sweet potato pies. Tina busted in my house while I was eating. You know what I said? Too bad you caught me cheating, but Brenda got a big old butt. My next album, Bigger and Defer, had dropped, and I was working on my third when I saw Gina next. It was at the Black Radio Exclusive, a convention at a big hotel in Cali. I walked in with my mink coat and my entourage. She saw me from across the room and yelled out, "'Hey, come here!' I said, "'Yeah, yeah, yeah, I'll be back in a minute.' I went upstairs to a room, grabbed a couple of groupies, and knocked it out, and then never got with Gina again. Was it revenge? Hell yeah!' With each passing episode, I became more and more out of control. That porn mentality from way back was growing, lurking under the surface, and while I was rarely crossing the line, I often thought about it. Sometimes the line became so blurry, I couldn't tell if I was crossing it or not. If a girl was down to do something a little freaky, I was right there with her. My favorite was taking a shower curtain, spreading it smooth side up on the bed, and pouring a bottle of baby oil on it. That made for some crazy, slippery, bugged-out sex. Sometimes i get a girl to fill her mouth with warm water and give me a blowjob. And they say, oil and water don't mix. <laughs> Ironically, none of my porn mentality seeped into my stage performances. I know I take off my shirt a lot and all that, but I don't get off on that. I really take off my shirt because it's hot in those lights on stage, and the times I brought the couch on stage during my I Need Love days, it was completely choreographed, every move. And there ain't nothing wicked about that, believe me. On stage, the sexy things I do are all business. I toured following the release of Bigger and Deffer*, with a group of prominent rap artists. This was another wild tour. There were so many people doing drugs at our hotel, you could walk up and down the hall and see them snorting cocaine right in the open. It was like that. And the groupies? Unbelievable. One time I was chilling in the hotel, and this rapper, who was a lot bigger than I was at the time, and who will remain nameless, pulls me to the side. He tells me to go to his room and hide in the closet. I didn't know exactly what he was up to, but I knew it would be off the hook. In walks the rapper. He has this fly-ass hottie with him. I leave a crack in the closet door so I can see what's going on. I feel like I'm in junior high school again, getting busted looking into the girl's bathroom. Except this is much more interesting. The rapper is sitting on the edge of the bed, and the hottie is on her knees. She just pulls out his joint and starts giving him a blowjob. I mean, Honey was working it. She was doing him lovely. After a while, I couldn't take it anymore, so I busted out of the closet and said, "'Will you do me next?' She looked at me all disgusted and said, "'No!' Homeboy just looked at me and started laughing. That was messed up. I've been propositioned by women in long-term relationships, and even a lot of married and professional women. When you're what they consider a celebrity, people think if they have sex with you, it will somehow rub off on them or something. With some people, it's like they're on crack. They can't control themselves. I can't explain it. That has never been my mindset even before I became a celebrity. But I was getting my fix, feeding my sex habit. Sex with a healthy helping of pornography thrown in made me feel like I had control of my emotions, my feelings. But I really didn't. It was controlling me. I was so off the hook. I used to buy prostitutes for my boys. Buying hookers for my friends was exciting for me. It was part of the hype, the power trip, the myth of living large. We used to go up to this hotel on Jamaica Avenue on the spur of the moment, and I would get a room and get like three or four hookers for my friends. I would just peel off the cash, give it to them, telling them to have a ball. I also used to go down to 42nd Street in Manhattan to do the peep shows that... Little shot in my video doing it where I'm in the peep booth and there's a sexy lady dancing while I'm eating an apple was really tame compared to the real thing. I mean, girls behind the glass doing all kinds of freaky things and me there watching. It's funny, even then, in the back of my mind, I'd be sitting in these places thinking how nasty, sad, and seedy they were. I was looking around at the filth and death and there I was sitting right in the middle of it. When I was home in Queens, I used to take young ladies to this motel in Kew Gardens, Queens, which was not too far from LaGuardia Airport's airport airports it was freak central by my headquarters a lot of times i would go to the restaurant downstairs and just sit there and watch like it was my own personal peep show it was hilarious watching the couples come and go sometimes i went there just to chill i was pretty well known and it was one place where people rarely recognized me these were everyday people hundreds of couples every day doing the same thing i was doing getting busy or thinking about it or looking pictures and and movies, and isn 't that funny? They say, they say the pornography industry takes in hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but no one ever talks about it. I accumulated porn tapes too i 'd be driving late at night, and someone would be selling them near the Queensboro Bridge, or a tape would be left on the tour bus, and I would just claim it. Or I'd rent them and never return them. I had stacks of them. I was into a lot of well-known porn stars like Vanessa Del Rio and Seika. I even slipped Ron Jeremy into one of my raps. Clap your hands on Panther. LL Cool J and the J is for Jeremy, so do me. I even heard a couple of my songs like Big Old Butt. Later, Jinglin' Baby as background music on a few porn flicks. That bugged me out. I was a pornography addict on my way to becoming a sex junkie. If sex and pornography left tracks, I would have had needle marks from head to toe. And being a rap artist on tour just made it worse. It was like giving a junkie an unlimited supply of heroin. And overdosing on sex, like overdoping on, overdosing on dope, is lethal. My collection of triple X-rated tapes was growing. Sex was running my life. I was ill juggling all these ladies and not respecting any of them, or myself. So one day I got fed up. I gathered up all my porno tapes, about 20, grabbed my pile of magazines and threw them in a big green trash bag. It was 3 a.m. I went out and found a dumpster and threw the bag in. I quit cold turkey. Thank God. I've done some stupid things sexually. The dumbest was having unprotected sex. I mean, I was wild and recently I would to take an AIDS test for an insurance policy, and I was going through a living hell for two weeks. I was waking up in cold sweats with nightmares of all the wild things I'd done in my past. I knew I could have easily been caught out there. While waiting for the results, all I did was pray and think about this devastation. A positive test would know would have meant for my wife, my children, to my life now. Something I did back in the day could have come back to haunt me. It really gave me something to think about. The test came back negative. Thank God. I was clean, but not because I took care of myself and was responsible. Probably the few times I did use a condom saved my life. Now I tell everyone I know, whatever you do, no matter what the circumstances, do it safely. I'd met Simone right in the middle of this wild period in my life, and for a hot second, she was responsible for chilling me out. For the first time in my life, I met a woman who i just like for herself. Looking back on all of that, I must have been really crazy to be such a dog, because to me, Simone is like 400 billion times better looking than all those girls. Her beauty is the kind that you don't see every day. The hottest and most pleasurable moments for me now are when I'm with my wife. It's not just physical. I get the most pleasure out of really feeling her inside without even touching her. She's beautiful and talented and smart as well. When you share sex with someone you're truly connected with, it's special. The movements are the same, but the subtext is different. Subtext is different. I am aware of what she's feeling and giving her what she needs. It's not, it's not all about me. It's funny. Some brothers feel that if their lady is screaming and hollering, they're really getting the job done. She's walking funny afterward. They want to slap pounds with their boys. I've learned that that ain't cool. You know, if she's walking funny, it hurt her. And just because she's yelling and screaming doesn't mean it's feeling good. You have to be in tune with your woman and know that she may not tell you all the time what she wants. You have to be there with her. Or ask her. You know, ask if you don't know. I feel really blessed that Simone waited for me to grow up. I'm glad she endured and stuck by me during the rough times. Don't get me wrong, she didn't go out like a sucker. She let me know how foul I was, and for a little while she even saw another man. But her heart was always with me. She's the one woman who knows me at my core, especially after this book. <laughs> and she knew that I would eventually become the kind of man I needed to be. There's definitely a reason why she's the mother of my children, and there's definitely a reason why she's my wife. A relationship, any relationship, only works when two people are growing together. Simone and I are growing together. I'm really fortunate that I came out of my dark period of sexuality. There are people in their 30s and 40s who still live like I did. On the outside, it seems fun, but underneath, there's a lot of pain. Took me a few years to figure that out, and like many junkies, I even had relapses. I think I'm all right now, though. As Simone says, you better be! big thanks to audible for sponsoring today's episode of nocturnal emotions all right listen i've got some good news and some bad news the bad news is that your brain starts shrinking at the age of 18 but the good news is that your ears never stop growing more room for headphones earphones all the reasons to keep your mind active thank god audible exists Audible allows you to listen to books or stand-up from your favorite comedians hands-free. It's important to keep reading, and now you busy bees can, while multitasking, much like the reading I'm doing of this LL Cool J book today, but they even do it better at Audible. You know, I I learned so much from them. Audible is the leading online provider of audiobooks and audio entertainment. They've got over 150,000 books to choose from. Plus, you can listen to Audible on almost any device, iPods, iMacs, Kindles, MP3s. Whatever you got. If you go to Audible now, you'll get the special offer they're giving our listeners a free audiobook and a free 30 day trial. All you have to do is log on to audiblepodcast.com/harmar to get it. Need a recommendation? Why not try More Information Than You Require by John Hodgman? John Hodgman is incredibly funny and he narrates his book himself. So go to audiblepodcast.com/harmar for a free audiobook and 30 day free trial. Remember, that's AudiblePodcast.com backslash Harmar for a free audiobook. 30-day free trial. Thank you, Audible. Now let's jump back into the show, into my own book, into this LL Cool J masterpiece. I make my own rules. Read by me, Harmar Superstar. Sleeping with the Enemy. I met Lizette in 1988 while rehearsing for my Walking with the Panther tour in a midtown rehearsal studio called SIR. The album had just dropped and it was doing pretty well. And Dapper Dan, this big-time clothier from uptown, supplied us with a lot of gear, brought her, her twin sister, and one of her girlfriends to meet me. There was no attraction. In fact, she had a smart mouth. When she met me, she was like, That's your car out there? With all this attitude, like she couldn't believe it was my car, I had just bought the white custom-made convertible 560 Mercedes in Cali. Yup, I said. Lisette was like, yeah, bright, that ain't your car. So I said, let's go for a ride then. I took her and her little girlfriends for a spin, just playing with them, showing off. We built a friendship from there. It started out very innocently at a time when I was heavily involved with Simone. Lisette was my little hip-hop consultant. I needed to keep plugged into the younger people and I was really vibing with her like that But after Simone had her first child, Najee, I started bugging out I was scared of the responsibility at that point I wanted my freedom and being tied down to a woman and a child was not my idea of freedom So I ran and when I did, Lisette was right there waiting She was part of another world, Harlem There's a difference, a huge difference, between living in Queens and going uptown People from uptown, from Harlem, act differently from people in Queens. People uptown are a little more aware of clothes, they're a little more stylish. Harlem is where the Cotton Club is. That's where Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington were. That's where the Apollo is. That's flavor, the capital of black New York, no question about it, and it's more than a burrow away from Queens in attitude. I was already going uptown a lot buying jewelry, going to clubs and just hanging out, but Lizette introduced me to a part of Harlem that I hadn't seen. She was part Trinidadian, Trinidadian, how do you say that? She was part Trinidadian and part Dominican, lived in Spanish Harlem and spoke Spanish. That tripped me out. It was a whole new environment for me and little by little we became closer friends and started hanging out a lot. Our friendship didn't make any sense, not to me, not to anyone around me and definitely not to Simone. "'I had almost completely abandoned Simone, but I made sure she was living okay. "'She had a condo in Jamaica Estates, and we had our second child conceived through a rough period for us. "'I know Simone didn't want to have another baby for me by the way I was acting, "'but despite my fear of responsibility, I did. "'It was like a great accomplishment, but what I didn't realize then, and I definitely do now, "'is that if you aren't there to make sure the seed you planted is properly nourished, "'watered, and taken care of, it may not grow right. "'Thank God for Simone's character.' She did a hell of a job with our kids when I wasn't there, and she put up with a lot of stuff from me, too. One time, Simone and Lizette had this crazy confrontation in front of a condo in Jamaica State. It was my first home away from my grandparents' house. I was just coming home, and Simone must have been waiting for me. While I was gone, I told Lizette not to answer the phone, but... Simone called, and Lisette answered. I don't know exactly what transpired, but Simone came out after that, and when I pulled up, Lisette was out on the terrace of my p- apartment, and Simone was on the sidewalk below. The two of them are going at it, shouting back and forth. It was crazy. I'm sitting in my Mercedes with this kid I'll call Rat, who used to hang around me and steal from me. I knew he was no good, but that's how I was living then. He stole jewelry, money, clothes, everything. He had that kind of access to my stuff. One time he stole some guns from me and I just got fed up. Me and my boys took Rat to a garage and beat him down. I know. Why didn't I just tell him to step off the first time after he stole from me? I don't know. Why did I have the guns anyway? I don't know. That's just how I was living. It was sick. It was a tortured existence. So Simone and Lizette are having this really loud argument in the middle of the night on the quiet street in Jamaica States. And I'm sitting in the car watching with my man. Simone comes walking over and says, Todd, tell this girl to get out of your house. She's looking at me like she knows I'm going to set things straight, but I just sat there in the car and didn't say anything to either of them, just like an ass. I knew something wasn't right, but I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I wanted to have the best of all worlds. It was like I was under a spell. "'I really do believe Lisette tried to put a spell on me, by the way. "'She was into voodoo, and even though I really never believed in that stuff before, "'I knew whatever she was doing was real. "'I started finding these little mojos around the house, "'and she would bring me little things and she wanted me to wear. "'I wouldn't wear them, though, and she would get mad at me. "'One time, she brought me a little clay face that her grandmother had made "'and said, "'Wear this. This is nice.' "'I said, "'Nah, I don't want to wear that.' "'She sucked her teeth and had an attitude for the rest of the night.' I was friends with Lizette for close to a year before I realized something wasn't right. But back then, I couldn't see clearly because I wasn't spiritually evolved. That impotent demon was all over me again. I was so busy running around that I gave up a family. The chance to raise my son in his early years, the chance to see my daughter's early years, and the opportunity to have a woman on my side who was really on my side. I gave up the opportunity to be a real man and take care of my responsibilities. I gave up the opportunity to show God that I was truly grateful for what he gave me by making sure that my children had the best of everything. I traded all of that in for nothing Almost nothing could have stopped me from doing it Only a bullet could have stopped me from going down that track A bullet or God, of course Sometimes God puts us in situations so we can learn He says, hey, I'll close your eyes and you make it so you can't see the right way Just so you will learn something valuable by feeling your way in the dark That's what happened to me In the beginning, I was enjoying the hell out of my supposed freedom. Toward the end, it was hell, and it seemed like everything around me was going there with me, my money, my friends, my career. I owned a house in Long Island, a house I'd promised Simone we would live in together, but I had Lizette hanging out there a lot instead. I was so foul, I now I realize it, and I'm very sorry for that. My next album, Mama Said Knock You Out, took me to another level musically, but my lifestyle only got worse. The year before I did that album, Gangster Rap had become huge. Ice T was out there, and NWA was blowing up the spot straight out of Compton. Too Short was selling millions in the underground. I mean, you couldn't play his stuff on the radio, it was so off the hook. They took the reality public enemy and KRS-One were talking about to the extreme. They were talking about finding power and drive-bys and killing police, and they were really speaking to a whole generation of disillusioned and angry youth. My style had been getting a little tired, and I knew I wasn't feeling the people anymore. The backlash I got from Panther had shaken my confidence. A lot of rappers were dissing me on the records. Cool Moe D, MC Shan, Steady B, and even Ice-T were saying that my style was played out and whack. I must have been doing okay, though for them to take those shots at me, you know? I dissed them back. It was like any kind of competition, like what the Chicago Bulls and the Utah Jazz doing the NBA championships. It's all about the game and winning, and I was in it to win it. I had to regroup, so I went back to the beginning, to Grandma's. One night, I left the studio early and just went to the house where it all began, into the basement so I could think and get connected. My grandmother knew something was up. She came down and asked me what was the matter. Grandma, I don't know if I have it anymore. I feel like... All these other guys are getting over it. She didn't understand. It's changed so much, I said. I can't do it the way they do it. What's selling now is something totally different. She said, I'll baby just knock them out. I went back upstairs. Knock them out, I thought. Yeah, I'll knock them out. I rolled the idea over and over again in my brain, and that night I started writing. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years, rocking my peers, putting suckers in fear. I'm gonna knock you out. Mama said knock you out. Platinum. Again. I knew I had to do something bigger and different with this one, so I came out hard. Not gangster, just hard. Real raw. And I knew I, knew I needed to, uh, some help to achieve that. On Panther, I had done a lot of it myself, the writing and mixing. While doing promotional work for it, though, I came frequently... Popped up on local radio stations. One time I did a gig at WBLS FM in Manhattan on the air with DJ Marley Marl. After the show, he talked to me about doing remixes on my upcoming album, and I said, All right. So on Mama, he remixed Jingling Baby. It blew up. It seemed like every song on that album was a hit, and I was really enjoying the fruits. I remember sitting in the audience of Madison Square Garden wearing nothing but a leather vest, matching pants, and a leather Kangle style hat, chest out, arms out, Buffed. I had really put in a lot of work for this entire album, down to perfecting my body, and it paid off. So I was sitting in the audience waiting for them to call my name for a Grammy, and they did. Yo, a Grammy. That moment was one of the sweetest. It was like everyone who ever said I couldn't do something was proved wrong that day. It was just like... When I was up there for Soul Train Music Award for I Need Love back in 1987, it was a record that people had laughed at in the beginning. They were saying it was too soft and it wouldn't sell. It blew up. When they told me I was on time, I just won. I won. All I could hear was player haters saying, you ain't nothing, you suck, you can't do it, just give up. Ha! When they called my name, I literally bugged out. Everybody was talking about how wild me and my crew, Bobcat and the LA Posse were acting like we had never won anything before. We hadn't, but I felt vindicated. It's funny, that seems to be a constant theme in my life. From learning how to ride a bike to my first performance in a church basement at 13, this girl came up to me afterward and said, you suck. I have always had something to prove. When I was trying to get a record deal, no one believed in me except my family, and I went out and I did it. Another time, just after I had cut my my first record, I did a block car party around my way. After I finished my set, I told the crew and the crowd to look out for my new single in the stores. The MC grabbed the mic for me and yelled, Stop lying! And the whole crowd started laughing. I was standing there like a sucker. A few years and two platinum albums later, though, I saw that guy again at a clothing store. He looked at me and nodded his head in recognition of how wrong he had been. After Panther, which went platinum... People said I was finished, washed up because of the negative backlash I got for all my selfish lyrics. I came back with Mama Said Knock You Out. With a Grammy, another platinum hit, more cars and more women, I thought I was back on top. I was feeling good about the movie Toys, which was in the works. I was working with acting giants and a great director. What I thought was a bit part was turning out to be a great role and we were having fun on set. Robin Williams was real nice to me. He was no prima donna caught up in that big Hollywood star syndrome. In fact, at times, he was a little too real. He would show up to the set all funky, smelling like a wild boar, like a truckload of hot garbage, and I was thinking, damn, this guy is really regular. He was so entertaining, though, that I didn't mind. On the set, he was hilarious, constantly in character and making jokes and carrying on, and I really learned a lot about acting from him. So on the surface, everything seemed perfect. I couldn't have been more wrong, though. Everything was definitely not perfect. While I was out collecting my spoils, Simone had been sitting at home, taking care of our two kids and a lot of bull for me. My kids were living day to day in a small two-bedroom condo. I was a, a millionaire three or four times over, man. And at one point, in time, some, some other man was there, taking them places, eating dinner with them. And I was paying for that spiritually with Lizette. Fortunately, there was another voice in my other ear saying, homeboy, you ain't living right. It started getting louder and louder. That voice was Charles Fishers. He had been there at the very, very beginning of my career. This obscure, strange guy I didn't pay much attention to over the years. He kept popping up here and there like a constant reminder, but this last time he was armed with the word. I couldn't run from that. Charles had worked with Russell in the early 1980s, and at one point he even ran my first a fan club first time we met i was uh it was, it was 1985 and i was finishing radio we just happened to be leaving russell's office at the same time and he offered me a ride to the studio we walked a couple blocks from broadway to third avenue where he said his car was parked but it wasn't there it had been towed or stolen i didn't stick around to find out because i had to jet to the studio when i met him again in 1991 in a nightclub in queens he said some s- had some spiritual and cultural literature that he wanted me to read This was during the mama years, when I was supposedly to be at the pinnacle of my career. I had a full entourage, plenty of champagne, and I was draped in women. But underneath the gold chains and glitter was this foul stench, and I guess Charles smelled it. He told me that on one of those pages, I would get so much spiritual power and wealth, and I was thinking, I already have that. But he was insistent about my reading the material he had, so I had him send it over. I took it on tour with me. What the hell? I thought it couldn't hurt. Somewhere along the way, though, I lost some material before I could finish reading it. A few months later, I ran into Charles again at the Christmas party for Video Music Box, which was a big event at the time. He asked me what I thought of the stuff he had sent me, and I confessed that I had lost it on the tour bus, but I told him that what I had read was exciting, and I asked him for another copy of of what he called The Power of the Prophets. He handed me his business card, looked me in the eye, and said, If you're serious about acquiring real power, prove it, and give me a call. Two days later, New Year's Day, I took Charles up on his challenge. I decided to start my life fresh and clean, and my New Year's resolution was self-improvement. It seemed like the perfect opportunity to walk the talk. When I called his house, Charles couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it was me. On New Year's Day, but he told me he would give me another copy of the information if I would commit to being the honorary chairman of his youth program, Youth Enterprises, for one year. I agreed. Hours later, I was knocking at his door to get the information that would change my life. I read everything Charles gave me. It was like water in the desert, filling in all the missing parts, not just in my education, but in my soul. Things I already knew but couldn't prove were answered for me, things about the origin of man and what God really expects from us. Charles had me reading everything from the Bible to the Koran, and I was drinking it up like I'd been on the Sahara for ten years without a drop. I would come to his house at two in the morning, tapping on the window for another book. Charles would come to his door and baggy... <laughs> in baggy drawers and those stick-figure legs with a book in his hand for me. I was like a junkie needing a fix, and he was the drug he had. The drug was knowledge. If school taught me stuff like that, I would have graduated summa cum laude. Just about every day we studied, either in person or by phone, and I began to realize that even though I thought I was rich and successful, there were still a lot of things that I did not know. In order for me to get to the next level in life, I needed to discover my true purpose on this planet— and how to use my success for the benefit of those who were less fortunate. Charles was like my personal spiritual tutor, like Yoda. He even taught me about meditation, and little by little I started to see what was going on around me. My eyes, my mind's eyes began to open. What I saw frightened me. I began to see Lizette for who she really was, and it wasn't good. I realized she was doing some foul stuff to my to my friends. To me to stay my friend, and I was following like a zombie under a spell. I was crazy. While we were hanging out, strange things had been happening. Her grandmother was so upset with her for dealing with me that she took a Bible, burned it, put it in her shoes, and mailed it to her. Yo, I still don't know what that was all about. I don't know if her grandmother was mad because she didn't know what dealing with me meant, or mad about the things she knew Lizette was doing in terms of the voodoo. Either way, it was ill. During the time I spent with Lizette, my grandmother even went to Fortune Tellers to find out what was wrong with me, why I was such a zombie, why I was just cutting off everybody in my life, my family, all my people, just to be Lisette's friend. It was like me and her me and her against righteousness, and I was bound to lose. I also began to realize that my so called friends were betraying me. Brian Latour, my co manager, was supposed to be my man he was supposed to be managing my career, but he was spending too much time managing Nas. Ask Nas how he liked that. I began to feel like he was playing me out. I was also starting to think something wasn't right between me and my father. I should have known something was really wrong in my life when my father started encouraging me to marry Lizette. What the hell was that about? I don't know, but Simone, to her credit, never gave up on me. She kept trying to snap me out of it. She had moved on with her life, and she was seeing another guy during this time, but... The bond between us was just too strong for her to let go fully. I always knew she was there, but now I'm forever grateful. I was very disrespectful during this time, and I'm very sorry for that. I was disrespectful for my family, disrespectful to my future wife and my mother my children, and I finally began to see myself for what I was. So I made a decision to change. It wasn't easy, but looking back on it seems like the only possible solution. Charles taught me to erect spiritual mirrors by living righteous. If I cultivated my spiritual strength, he said, anyone trying to throw evil my way would have it come right back on them. I didn't waste any time. I started studying more and trying to apply those principles to my life, and I started struggling with those mirrors. Strangely, Lisette died from leukemia within two months of this. She was 17. What? Well... Well, Jesus. After her death, I was lying in the in the bed in the basement of my grandmother's. I was feeling the need to be connected, so I went back to my grandmother's house. That's where I do most of my writing for my albums and most of my heavy thinking. In that house, I was always looked out for and loved. Conflict was constant in my life. I was battling the pull to act wild versus the need to be righteous, and it was difficult. So I was lying in the bed, not sleeping, just staring at the ceiling in the dark. Everything had happened so fast. So I'm lying there, and all of a sudden, I feel this force. Some people may think this is crazy, but it's real. This is uh, this force, a demon, was in the room hovering over me. It pinned me to the bed. I couldn't move. I could barely breathe. It had my arms pinned to the bed, and I felt this presence around my face. It was like the forces of darkness had come to life in my room. I could feel the breath on my face. It said, you can be where you want to be. You can have everything you want, but you have to say yes now. At the time, I was feeling like I had nothing. No kids, no wife, no friends, no home, no career, nothing. I had the reverse Midas touch. Everything I touched was turning to shit. But I knew if I said yes, I'd be selling my soul. Said to me again, say yes. Just say yes, and it's yours. I was fighting, trying to break loose. I screamed, no! And as I said no, I felt snakes crawling through me, up my rectum, out of my mouth and ears, and then wrapping around my neck, choking me. I heard women giggling all around me, and then silence. Everything was gone. I was left lying there, sweating, my wrists aching. Even today, sometimes my wrists will ache for no apparent reason. I think it's a reminder that evil is just waiting for me, waiting to give me everything I think I want, but really wanting me to take everything I need. I know I have to be strong, strong enough to say no, and patient enough to wait for the real goodness. Hello Earwolf fans, this is Harmar Superstar of Nocturnal Emotions, here to let you know about my new album Bye Bye Seventeen. What you're listening to right now is the first single, Lady You Shot Me, and the rest of the album is full of sweet, saccharine soul just as this. Cult Records will be releasing the album on April 23rd in the U.S. and May 6th in the U.K. and Japan. So get ready, look out for it. Pre-order it now on iTunes for only $4.99, a limited time offer. You won't regret it. Go to HarmarSuperstar.com for tour dates and CultRecords.com for more information on this glorious record. Bye Bye 17 by Harmar Superstar. You will love it. And I'm out. Back to the show. Righteous Revelation. Crossroads. I was standing in the shower naked, both inside and out. I let the water flow all over my body. The tears washed down my face along with the water. I hadn't really cried since I was a kid, but on this day I made up for it. I was crying for a woman I had treated like a dog, crying for the children I had abandoned, crying for my life which I was just throwing away, and crying because I felt like I had been betrayed on every level. I had a broken heart. I had fooled myself in believing that I had won some kind of major spiritual battle, but you can't fool yourself forever. My life had gone from hell to hell. I was pouring my soul into my next album, 14 Shots to the Dome. Lyrically, it was the deepest thing I'd ever done, but my spirit was disturbed throughout the recording, mixing, remixing, and throughout the whole process. It had sold fewer than 800,000 copies For most artists, that would be good Real good But for LL Cool J, coming off four straight platinum hits and a Grammy It was a setback Maybe the end I'd set a high standard for myself And a lot of people would put me out front by buying my music Were saying I didn't have it anymore It looked like my career was finished We had high hopes for my latest film, Out of Sync, My first real starring role But it bombed at the box office They spent like a million dollars to make it And it made only 9,000 dollars It was in and out of the theaters so fast It should have gone straight to video I thought it would do well Because for the first time I had nothing on my head For all to see You're holding the second time And besides, it was directed by Debbie Allen Who I thought was great She did a fantastic job on the budget she had But my acting sucked I should have paid them for the movie So I cried about that too I was alone in the shower in my empty apartment in California After about a half hour I came out My body was clean. My soul had also gotten a thorough rinsing. I realized I'd been driving in a car with a dirty windshield. When your windows are dirty, you don't have a clear view of what's around you. You might think your house and yard, like your life, are nice and well-maintained, and then someone comes along and cleans your windshield. Suddenly, instead of flowers and nicely trimmed hedges, you realize you got all sorts of weeds in your yard. You see the chipped paint. The broken stairs, the cracked sidewalk. You see that your house is not in order. That shower cleaned my windshield. I realized that the people around me were like weeds choking the life out of me, but I was the one who had planted the seeds. Charles had warned me, but I was stubborn. I had to witness the destruction firsthand to reach the bottom of the pit before I could get up and climb out. Terrified, you feel the fire blaze. The ground can't hold your weight. You reach out to grab the pearly gates. Who clocked this fucking not from space. Never again will you see the human race, 19 angels leading the devil straight to hell. Torment, pain, what you see in here you can't explain. All your life men we played the game. Never realized that there's a flame. I'd been badly burned. My best friend, my son's godfather, and my manager had betrayed me. I felt like my own father was stabbing me in the back, but... I was my own worst enemy. I had thrown away a solid relationship with a woman I loved and lost the chance to see my kids grow up. I was creating the scenario so they would have a painful childhood like mine, walking out of their lives so they'd be raised by another man who wasn't their father and might mistreat them because they weren't his children. It had taken me nearly seven years to get to the so-called top, Now I know better than to ever think I'm on top, and it took less than a year to lose everything. I was surrounded by people who only cared about what they could get from me and what I represented to them. I was only LL Cool J, the big-spending, Grammy-winning, platinum-selling rapper, LL the commodity, nobody was seeing Todd. I concluded that the deal with my pops and renegotiated with Def Jam was smart for them, but not so smart for me. The deal basically locked me into the new contract for what seemed like life. I found out that I owed more than $2 million million dollars in back taxes. I almost lost my house. One of the main things my father used to complain about, the accountant's not making sure my taxes were paid, was the very thing he let happen. I don't know if he was in over his head or what, but he was also misusing the company credit cards. Plus, movie offers had been coming in left and right that I was never told about. I had taken what I thought was a bit part in Toys, and it turned out to be the best role of my life, but I never really capitalized on it. Today, I see Will Smith in blockbuster films, having become a box office superstar, and I respect how he parlayed his rap career into a big-time film career. Eventually, that'll be me, but back then, my management didn't encourage me to hone my acting skills, and they didn't push me into the right roles. For Toys to be my first flick out the box, Crush Groove doesn't count, since it was really a cameo. I should have been on my way. Besides having fun, I got rave reviews for my part. After Toys, I played a detective in a movie with Michael J. Fox and James Wood. It was cool, but it wasn't really a step up or a stretch for me. And Out of Sync hadn't been a success as we'd all hoped. My film career had no momentum. Besides the general mismanagement, I think one of my father's biggest failures was making bad career choices for me, particularly with films. But some of it was my fault, too. He wouldn't have made so many bad decisions if I didn't let him. You can't just hand over the reins to your manager and say, here's my career, do what you want. Because ultimately, it is your career, and every decision made, no matter by whom, directly affects you. Today, I'm aware of every role, every offer, every deal, and every dime that comes through my camp. I'm involved with every decision, even down to the covers of my album. Even the cover of this book. That's the way it should have been from day one. Real trust is a rare rare attribute in show business. I trusted my father. I wanted to believe he was looking out for me, but he wasn't. And Brian hurt me just as much. I thought he was my best friend. He was my son's godfather, and there from the beginning. But what he did to me, what he did to Cornell, made me realize the type of person he must have been all along. I had been blind, deaf, and dumb. The wind is howling. The rain pours down. Eyes are bloodshot. Heartbeat pounds. Lights go out. The world's in darkness. The ground is trembling. Dogs are barkless. In the sky there appears a great light, burning all the flesh off the creatures of the night. Cornell lay in a bed in Manhattan in a raggedy hospital gown. Sorry, He had no clothes or shoes of his own. He had lost his hair and only weighed about 70 pounds. He was dying, and I wasn't there. He had been sick for a while, and I never knew. I was out in Los Angeles filming Out of Sync*, and we had gotten out of touch. But Gene Anthony Ray from Fame was working on the film with me and told me Cornell was sick. I called him in the hospital, and he didn't sound good. I asked him how he was doing. He broke down and cried. He told me he had AIDS. My first reaction was, how'd you catch that, man? But then I realized it really didn't matter. All I knew was that he was one of the best friends I ever had, and he was on his deathbed with no clothes, no shoes, and no money. I asked Brian to take care of him. I told him to give him a few thousand dollars so he could buy some clothes and shoes so he could live his last days with some dignity. If I was in a hospital, dying, I would at least want to have a robe and some decent clothes so I could talk to my visitors without being self-conscious. Instead, Brian went around telling everyone that Cornell was on crack and that he was pretending he was sick so he could squeeze some money out of me. Brian didn't give him a dime. All along, he kept telling me that he'd taken care of Cornell. It wasn't until Cornell died that I found out the truth. I can never forgive Brian for that. For what he did. Or, rather, what he didn't do. All those years, Cornell had known he was dying and never told anyone. He was too proud to ask me for anything. When he finally broke down and called me, the people I trusted to handle my business let him down and let me down. There are no words to describe how disgusted I was and still am. I did my best to make it up at his funeral. His family couldn't afford to bury him in New York. They were going to have a modest service and bury him somewhere in Jersey. But I knew Cornell wouldn't want to be buried anywhere but New York City. He was so proud to be from Harlem, proud to be from New York City. He used to... Walk around singing, New York, New York, all the time. I got him a good casket, a real nice suit, and a tombstone. Buried him in Woodlawn Cemetery in Queens, not too far from where he used to live, and not too far from my grandmother's house. It ain't Harlem, but at least he's buried in New York. I try to visit his grave sometimes when I come home. I played the player's ball by Outkast over and over again in my limo behind the hearst. It was a big funeral. Lots of flowers, lots of limousines, lots of people. Cornell, my man, and my teacher would have loved it. The spotlight and all the people loving him? It's a shame he had to die to get it. I took a lot of flack over the years for my relationship with Cornell. There'd always been rumors about his sexuality, his dying from AIDS just added to the speculation, but I didn't care because he was my man. He died of AIDS, so what? The worst thing was that he died. I used to wonder if he was gay or not myself, but it didn't matter to me because... I wasn't getting to that part of it with him. He'd embraced me, took me in, and looked out for me. He showed me the right way. What I learned from Cornell was sincerity and true friendship, unconditional love. I learned some funny things, too, like how to give a courtesy flush and what to do if anybody ever kicked me in the nuts, jump up and down on my heels real hard. Even if his death taught me something, it taught me to start acting in my own life like the friend Cornell was to me. It's hard to find sincere people when you have money. They only know how to be sincere when you're broke. If you have money, nobody is your friend. People like Brian, my father, and my growing entourage taught me an important lesson, that most people only want what they can get from you. It's one of the saddest aspects of being successful. I'd given Brian his own record company, made sure he always had money, a car, everything, then he turned around and let me down. He allowed my main man to die in a hospital with no clothes or shoes because he didn't like him and was probably jealous of our relationship. You have to look at what people bring into your life. If they bring bad vibes and turmoil, then they're bad for you. If they are always around conflict or in conflict, they're bad for you. That's something I learned from Cornell. The things he did for me, for the most part, changed my life for the better. Cornell was special. He was so cool. One time I told him, Yo, Cornell, we look alike. He said, get the hell out of here. No, I'm telling you, we look alike. Look at our faces, the shape. I was seen beyond the exterior and looking inside Cornell, looking at the structure of his soul. I never saw him with a man or anything, but anybody who would turn down an opportunity to have a true friend because of their sexual preference, race, or religion ain't real. If you have just one real friend, you're lucky. Do you know how many people don't have any friends at all? There's a song about that, about how the luckiest thing in the world is to find a friend along the way. It's completely true. Losing Cornell gave me the courage to clean house, something I had needed to do for years. I severed my business relationship with Brian in a gentlemanly fashion, and we went our separate ways. I then went to the bank to freeze what little money I, I had left. and While I was there, ironically, my father called to find out how much money was in the account that he could sign on. I froze that, too. I had to sever my relationship with him, too. Weeks later, he was calling me saying, You're not better off without me and I looked at the phone like he was crazy. Not only was I better off, I was free. My own father had let me down, he broke my heart, and for the first time in almost ten years, I was alone. I was forced to make my own decisions and be a man. Bring, bring. Who's this? I screamed into the phone. I was in my empty house in Long Island, and Lizette had been getting a lot of crank calls while she was hanging out of my crib. I thought it might have been another one, but it wasn't. Hi, is LL Cool J home? said this soft voice on the other line. This is Kidada. Kidada Jones, Quincy's daughter? She got my number from Russell Simmons and had been trying to hook up with me for weeks. She kept calling me like every other day and finally we decided to go out on a date. I met her in Manhattan where she was staying with a friend and we went out to eat. It was fun, so we started hanging out on a regular, hanging out on the regular and eventually we became romantic. First time I brought her home, my grandmother was so excited because she was Quincy Jones' daughter. I didn't care about all that. I just thought she was cool. I respected Kidada. We might have stayed together, but I guess fate and God had other plans for me. Kidada studied a form of yoga. She would go to an ashram, consult a guru, pray to statues. No disrespect to any religion, but I just can't pray to statues. That's something I knew long before I read about uh, idolatry and Charles. I can only pray to God. Uh, Even when I went to Catholic Church, I used to ask the priest why we had to pray to the statue of Jesus. I didn't understand why we couldn't just talk to God. The priest said something about it being easier to communicate through another i wasn't buying that before my album 14 shots to the dome dropped kidada told me she threw some kind of stick into my eternal fire for my album i was like yo why did you do that i didn't ask you to do that that joint flopped crazily oh well i'm sorry i cared she said i had hurt her feelings and she had hurt me too i know she meant well but i just couldn't get with that she took me to her guru once and I remembered kneeling there before the strange young woman who was touching us with feathers I said to myself you know what I'm like Solomon right now I was being led to praise things other than what I should be praising God and that freaked me out shook me back to reality here I was again trying to go with someone else's flow sacrificing my soul in the process I I knew then I couldn't be with her I thought she was a really nice girl, and we even talked about getting married. I bought a ring and everything, but I knew God didn't bring me all the way, didn't bring me all that way for me to turn my back on Him and go out like that. It boiled down to the fact that we just didn't believe the same things. No harm, no foul. It was not about disrespecting Kidada. It was more about me respecting and connecting with God on a level where I felt comfortable. We weren't on the same wavelength—not just spiritually. I was from Queens; she was from Bel Air. I I know what it's like to be hungry and live on the subway. All she's ever known is being rich. She has a rich, successful, talented father. My father was mostly absent. She praised a guru and statues, and I praised God straight up. We were just different, so we went our separate ways. Some people have accused me of using our relationship to get next to her father. If that were the case, I would have just stayed with her, but I couldn't do that. I wasn't going to take advantage of someone's daughter for personal gain, because I can imagine how I'd feel if someone tried to do that to Tally or... Samaria down the line Just to get next to me In fact, when I eventually started doing the television show With Mr. Jones, he told me Kidada asked him why he had to do a show with me This period of my life Was about soul searching And I am grateful for the experiences that I went through <clears throat> Through that seeking I found myself in many of the answers I was looking for Some of them were right there In front of me all along Man LL's really becoming a man Before our eyes, you know As we read this book, you know, you just, you just see a lot of it, you know, a lot of it can apply to your own life, but I I just can't believe how, how Brian treated Cornell at the end of his life. That was that's travesty, uh, really not cool and really cool of LL for, uh, stepping up and cleaning house after that. Um, yeah, man, shit, 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 shit. Uh, as always check out, uh, my tour dates. I'm going to be all over the place. Um, All over the U.S. and Canada uh, Mexico dates coming up We're going to be announcing those soon Um, There's talk of Japan Definitely the U.K. is announced There might be some more European dates after that So uh, get your tickets everybody Come see me live I'm just home Getting my shit together Before I take the Bye Bye 17 Even further on the road Just rocking the people playing the songs, bringing the soul music to people. Uh, I love you, and I hope you have a great week. Um, Back to school. Get your new notebooks. Buy your new Jabo jeans. Make sure you wow the the ladies, the dudes. Get your ear pierced. I don't know what you guys do. Harm our sleepy time. Bye-bye.